0: You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall Editors of the Batuta Advocate On Desert Rock FM Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show Recording live here in downtown Batuta Down here in Budgie Smuggler Studios You're joined by myself, Clancy Overall and Errol Parker How are you Errol? Good mate, always good, always good to get up and do an interview I love doing these Now in 2020 And into 2021, Uh, a lot of industries have been affected, as we kind of mention each week. Someone that we're interviewing has in some way been affected, as we all have. But one industry that has been rocked to its core, pardon the pun, is live music. A lot has changed for that industry in the last 18 months. And uh, a lot of people are now sitting at home reminiscing on a time when we could all go to gigs. And and that day will come again, but uh, you know it's a waiting game for now. And there's a lot of things that need to happen before that. Today's guest probably has a different experience and and, and looks at live music and gigs a bit differently to the rest of us after a lifetime backstage and uh, bumping in and bumping out and everything else that comes with it. Today we're joined by Tana Douglas live from LA, and uh, Tana is commonly known as and and probably officially the world's first female roadie. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Now, that title, first female roadie, was that getting thrown around when you first kind of got into the game?
1: No, I don't think anyone wanted to admit there was a female roadie back then. It was just <laughs> like, she's here. Or I don't know what we're going to do with her. You know? <laughs> is she going to go the distance? Let's not make any statements until we see where this is going to go, you know? You know, I mean, I I sort of hit the ground running. And so I didn't really have time to look around and see if there were any other females out there. You know, I mean, I was just with this group, this crew that were all men and it didn't really occur to me at the time. And then, you know, it it was probably a few years, but well, you know, when I started working with international bands, like for ACT, after I'd left ACDC, they were surprised to see a female, you know, and they're going, oh, this must be an Australian thing. (laughs) So it sort of started then. And then over the years, I didn't come across any. So it took quite a while. It was like mid 80s before I actually even did a tour with another female. But um, yeah, so at the time, I was just busy working,
2: you know. So that was way back when that was when... uh Pub rock, pub rock, um, yep. pub rock was the era when you hit the ground. Oh, it was huge! Yep. Yep. Yeah, huge pub
1: rock era. Absolutely, you know. We do. I mean, the why, why I didn't have time to look around was because you know, once I got with ACDC, we some weeks we do fourteen shows. I mean, it was just outrageous. <laughs> you know, you just yeah. <laughs> you didn't have time to do anything, let alone go. Oh, who else is doing whatever for whatever other band? Yeah. It just didn't happen.
0: You know? Now. Aside from that, that title we introduced you with, first female roadie in the world, your stripes on the road and the band you work with is of, of far more kind of notoriety and far more notable than anything else that we can, um, you know, any other record you broke. To, to start your career with bands like ACDC, can you tell us how that all went down?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was, I, I actually, the first band I worked for took me out of Sydney. I was living in Sydney at the time. They were a Melbourne band called Fox and uh i started working with them and they actually offered me a job and said you know when they come up and visit sydney they offered me a job and said you want to move back down to melbourne with us and keep working you know so i said yeah and unfortunately that meant i had to move back in with my mother (laughs) (laughs) which was a bit which was a bit awkward working for a rock and roll band and living back with your mother for the first time in however many years so you know when the offer came up for a band And somewhere to live, it was like, oh, hell yeah, I'm in. (laughs) Get me out of the house again, please.
2: So, how do you get into it? I mean, like, it isn't like these jobs are really advertised in the back of newspapers, or are they?
1: No, no, they're absolutely not. To begin with, it's probably about 80% personality. And then you've got to be able to do your dues, you know. But what happened was, I'd done a brief production thing with uh, Philippe Petit. He did a commando tightrope walk across the Sydney Harbour Bridge and I'd been up at the Nimbin Festival and and I got invited to come down and help out with that. So that was my first taste of production, so to speak, even though it wasn't with music. Then, you know, within six months I was back down in Sydney and after I'd had a bit of a rough time in the cross, and that that hadn't gone well for me and I decided I needed to get out and change a few things for safety's sake, um, I moved in with a couple of young girls and one of them, they were both into clubbing and stuff like that so it changed my whole outlook and i went to the whiskey a go-go and um the first night i went down there there was a a really well-known australian road crew person called wayne swampy jarvis he saw me there and you know he knew the girls and he said oh you've never been to a show before here come and sit here we'll stand you next to the to the sound desk and that's the best place to watch the show from so I'm standing there and I'm looking at these guys. And I really didn't have a clue of what they were doing. I didn't know what it was really. And I couldn't ask them because I'm busy working. And then I saw all these other people coming on and off stage. And, you know, when there was a break between sets, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, who are all these people and what are they doing? And he's like, well, they're roadies, you know, and I'm like roadies, you know, and then he's gone, they all travel with us and we're leaving tomorrow. We're going down to Melbourne and then Adelaide. And, and so I've gone, well, hang on a minute you travel, <laughs> you get to listen to music and you get paid, I'm in. I'm thinking, this is really good. This is something I could do, you know. So that was my first inkling to it. Then I got offered, um, it was funny actually, it was the same girl that invited me down to that show, wanted to get back to Melbourne. So we took her down to this band Fox that came up to Sydney she was going to try and get a free lift back down with them, you know, because she didn't have any money. So it was like if she got in the truck with the crew, she could get a free ride back down to Melbourne. So we went to the show and the plan was to get her this free ride and, you know, get her back to Melbourne. And, you know, everyone's drinking and carrying on and partying and stuff and not a lot of work's getting done at all, you know. Yeah. So I popped the question and it's like, you know, guys, she really needs to get back to Melbourne. Can she go with you guys? And one of the guys in the band, Peter Lappy, he looks over at the stage and he says, you know, if those guys get out of here tonight, she can go down with them, but otherwise forget it, you know. And I look over at the stage and they're falling about all over the place. It's like, oh, this looks a bit rough. So I said, well, why don't I give them a hand? And everyone, of course, laughed. <laughs> they're all like, yeah. <laughs> And so they thought it was a great joke and they yell out to the crew. They go, hey, she's going to come and give you a hand, you know. And the crew's like, oh, no. <laughs> so I wander over there and, you know, they teach me simple things like how to break down the drum kit. And I didn't damage anything or drop anything or hurt myself. So then they showed me how to coil a cable properly. And it's like, oh, she can do that as well. And then when it got to the point of loading the truck, it's like, no, no, I'll help. You know, and then they went, oh. they couldn't realize, they couldn't believe how strong I was. They're like, oh, she could lift anything we can, you know. So from that one night when they came back to town again, that's where I got my first gig. You know, they came back with only one guy instead of two and they just rang me and said, look, can you come down and help us out? (laughs) And then, you know, we did half a dozen shows in Sydney and they said, look, you know, this is working really well. Do you want to come to Melbourne? So that was the start of a career. It started off as a joke, really.
0: Trying to get your friend to ride. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, trying to get her out of of town, exactly.
2: Could you paint us a bit of a picture of what the scene was like back then? Like what were places like? King's Cross and the the, the Valley up in Brisbane, like, like obviously that they've changed a lot to what they are now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The Valley was pretty rough actually. I mean, I used to stay mostly around the town center, you know, I mean, I was just 15, you know what yeah. I mean? So yeah, yeah. I went to a few, I went to a few clubs in the Valley and I think one of my first experiences was watching someone OD and we had to walk the guy keep him walking and moving and stuff. So it was like, no, nah, this isn't for me. <laughs> you know, it's not going to get out of this one. You're so, right frog. You know, and then of course Yeah. <laughs> and then of course I go out of the pan into the fire with King's Cross. It's like oh, <laughs> and, uh, the the <laughs> the cross was rough in those days. Yeah, I yeah. mean it was heavy. It was it was heavy in a way that people just did not realize. You know, you you get all the R and R guys were still coming through, all the American soldiers yeah. and stuff and they'd get in all sorts of trouble because yeah. they just didn't realize how feral Australians can be, <laughs> and, and we were pretty we were pretty feral bugs, you know, so, you know, I, I got myself in trouble, you know, I thought I was okay, and I was hanging out with all the locals, and I thought, oh, this is fun, until it turned a little serious, and then it was like, I got to get out of here, yeah. you know, this is, this is not good, or I'll end up spending my entire life here, you know, and that wasn't. That wasn't
0: something I wanted. Well, yeah, last week we interviewed Father John from Wayside Chapel and he actually, you know, day-to-day – Works with the people that never left. So um, absolutely, it sounds like you made yeah, the right call the there. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's got a
1: he's got a rough job. Has yeah. been like yeah. that for decades. Yeah,
0: and they've just repealed the lockout laws, so it might <laughs> Kings Cross might make a oh. return. So we'll see.
2: Oh wow! Yeah, good time to leave. <laughs> oh. I thought. <laughs>
0: hopefully,
2: hopefully, there's a happy medium that they can get to. <laughs>
0: Yeah, ideally. Now, now you mentioned before that you kind of first got your taste with uh, a tightrope walker you met who uh, Philippe Petit down in uh, in Nimbin. That sounds like a you know just a passing kind of tangent in your story, but that actually was the festival that revolutionised Nimbin, wasn't it? Uh, the Aquarius Festival. Uh-huh was kind of when the hippies first arrived there. They'd never actually... That was a timber lopping town in Nimbin before that festival, which, which you were actually at. So, you know, yeah. that's almost a Woodstock moment. What, what, what Could you tell us how you ended up there? Was that just a little Toowoomba girl jumped on a bus south or...?
1: No, no, it was it was my Woodstock moment because yeah. when I was eleven years old
2: <laughs>
1: in boarding school,
2: hmm.
1: I, I discovered Janice Joplin. Right. <laughs> and I also then heard about Woodstock. Yeah. And in my eleven year old mind, I thought I could go to Woodstock. You know so I'd called my father and said, I want to go to Woodstock. And everyone's like, You're insane, you know, lock her up for the holidays, you know, <laughs> keep tabs on it. So when and so I got grounded, obviously, and never was allowed to go, obviously, no-brainer to everyone except for me. But then when Nimbin came up, it's like, you know what? I'm not gonna tell anyone, I'm just gonna go because this is gonna be my Woodstock, you yeah. know. So so that's what I did. I just packed a little bag and ran out of the house and never looked back. Went down there with a couple of other people and, yeah, I mean, you know, it was put on by university students, Nimbin, and the reason why they picked Nimbin is because the town was dying. You know, it was almost a ghost town. You know, it was in very bad condition. It was far enough away from all the capital cities to hopefully not draw enough attention, you know, for it to get shut down or anything. And, um, you know, the place where it was, it backed onto a national forest and so it was out of the way, you know, so... That's the only way they could have pulled it off. But, you know, I'm sure nobody had any idea of what they were creating at the time because (laughs) it's just still, it's still there. I mean, it's like... I'm kind of a two minds of it. I'd kind of love to go and see it, but then I'd kind of be a little scared in case, God forbid, I bumped into someone who I'd seen there. Oh my <laughs> God, they're still there. Yeah,
0: <laughs> probably probably sitting there working in the information centre still. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, never left. It's tell, like, oh my God. <laughs>
0: telling you where you can go and find a vegan cigarette. Uh, yeah. It's still, it's still. I mean, people people say you know people like to say oh that. the the crosses changed or the valleys changed or Nimbin's changed, but, you know, the old heads are still there, especially the ones that kind of uh, created these places. Now, absolutely, it seems like you had a sense of adventure from a young age, obviously, uh, 11-year-old already looking for your own Woodstock. Tell us, when you find, you know, you find yourself surrounded by these now historical, like iconic, household names these bands did you know it was happening when you were around these guys when you were around bon scott and uh you know and and, and the other bands you ended up working alongside did you realize that i'm now working with someone who they're going to talk about for 100 years
1: there was an energy in that room i mean i got taken to the house to meet them they were just down there for a couple of days it was before it was a full band actually i mean there'd been a a, a version of acdc but this was honor just joined there was malcolm angus there was harry Banda and George Young, that was it in the house at the time, you know, and they were just starting work on the first album so I walked in, you know and they were all just standing around chatting and it was kind of confusing to me because obviously Malcolm and Angus were close to my age, but the rest of them were much older, including Bond, you know Bond was more in the age group of Harry and George Mm. but he was with Malcolm and Angus you know, so I sort of walked in and it's like, wow, what's going on here I didn't quite get what was going on and then I got introduced to everyone and Brother George did that, actually. He took the lead, as he did, and he introduced me to everyone. So then it all fell into place of who was who. Within a few minutes, you could tell there was something really special going on here, and there was something that I definitely wanted to be a part of, and I was quite happy to leave the band I was with to become a part of this. It was more than just being able to live in the house and get away from my mother. It was like, you know, there's something special here. And then once we started gigging and we got the other two members, we got Phil, and then eventually we got Mark, then, you know, once all five were together, it was like, there's no stopping these guys. I mean, they're worth it. the work ethic and the conviction from Mal was astronomical. I mean, it never faltered. It was like, this is it. This is what we're doing. This is where we are. And let's go. And that's where the 14 shows in a week came in, you know, just whatever it took. I mean, we didn't do that every week, but we did it frequently.
0: And you're 17 at this point. You're not old enough to drink in pubs in half of the uh, half of the places <laughs> you're visiting. Uh, did, was, was that obviously a benefit to your career, uh, the fact that you weren't allowed in <laughs> with them afterwards?
1: No, 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 because I never got carded once. I mean, I don't know if anybody <laughs> yeah. even got carded in those days. I'm not <laughs> sure. I used to run interference, actually, for Angus, who was a year older than me. Angus was actually 18, and he was okay. I was the one that was underage, you know, but police would turn up to sort of give Angus a hard time. And I'd, I'd sort of run interference and say, oh, come on, guys, let us let me buy you a drink at the bar. And, and they'd go, I said, they can't get out of the dressing room. There's only one entrance. They've got to walk across the stage. We'll see them. But if you don't mind, I don't want to take you in there when they're all undressed and sweaty and stuff. That's not good for a girl. And they're like, oh, okay, sweetheart, yeah. So they'd take me over to the bar and we'd sit and have a drink. And then I'd say to them, i say, you know, so they should be out any minute, but just in case, I think you should probably know you just bought me a drink and I'm only 17. And they go, oh. I said, but just between you and me, the good news is Angus is 18. And just like, ah. So that was sort of the extra bits that you do for the band, you know.
2: So, so what was the experience like? You're working and living with the same – group of people day in and day out for months at a time did you ever find that just got to be a bit too much and you just had to go for a walk in the park on your own for an hour or two
1: not for a lot of years no i mean i'd finally found in my mind a family unit you know it was as near as i got to a family unit so i was as happy as anything i was just like oh this is fabulous i finally got a bunch of people who i can think of as a family and years down the road, when it gets a bit much, I would just get up and leave, but not come back. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. If I ever if I ever got up and went for a walk, it was like, oh, she's gone. Yeah. yeah <laughs> huh. But but it would take a lot to get yeah. to do that. But yeah, yeah. No, it was it was the family that i have been looking for actually. I mean, and, and it just continued over the years with different crews and different bands and different production companies. It's it's as close as I've ever come, you know. I mean, I do have two. Half sisters and two half brothers, who only in the last couple of years I've been in touch with because yep. you know it was such a shattered family. Yep. So it's kind of interesting, but it's a little weird at this stage of the game to be honest. So you know, where where it's were you kind from? Of awkward.
0: Where were you from as a young as a as a young kid? Were you from Toowoomba, or you were sent to Toowoomba as the nearest boarding school?
1: Yeah, no, I started off in Brisbane, yep. and then my mother did a runner. With me and one of my half sisters when I was four. Okay. So and from the time I was four till the time I was eleven, we traveled constantly up and down the east coast of Australia. Right. So, like in that amount of time, you know, by the time I was I went to boarding school, I'd already been to like eleven different schools. Okay. Yep. You know, which is a lot of schools, mm. you know. So the, the relationship with the mother was was not good mm. and it got worse and it deteriorated really rapidly. So that's when my father came into the picture that um they decided that they had to send me to him because it was safer so that's when i went to boarding school because (laughs) he'd been he'd been looking for this cute little four-year-old that got taken away from him and what he got back was a feral eleven-year-old. Yeah. Right, <laughs> so
0: right. he's like, yeah. "Ow, okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: Maybe, maybe we should put her in a boarding school yeah. and take off some of those rough edges." She's <laughs>
0: talking about Woodstock here. Yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That
1: was after I'd started <laughs> boarding school. So he's like, "Oh God, am uh, wasting my money?" <laughs> but
0: it's—it sounds like you did. I mean, I mean, it sounds like you did get a kind of taste for moving around and kind of meeting new people every every night, uh, every every place you stayed. Did you- yeah? I mean.
1: It, It
0: it came naturally. Yeah, it came. So it did, like, did you, do you now have that kind of rapport where you can move in and out of a circle, you know, with that kind of uh, roadie mentality where you might run into someone in five years and you've kind of, nothing's changed and we're back at work?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's an important part of my life, actually. It's like, it's a really good part of my life, you know, and it's, I think it's a special thing and anyone who has that should be really, really grateful.
2: Can you tell us about when the first time came that you were taken on tour overseas? All of us know that ACDC's—you you, know—it's it's an Australian band. But what was it like to go overseas, you know, for the first time? Well,
1: I went. I went overseas separately to them. I actually left before they did. Yep. Because I'd already been working for international bands with Paul Dainty, the promoter. Yep. He had his oh, yeah. own crew. Yeah. So. From those shows, I did like six tours in seven months or something with with, um, Paul Dainty and around Australia for international bands. And out of that, I got offered a tour in the States, which was gonna be Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review part two, they'd already done part one. And what happened was that that fell apart really, you know, the promoter, it it just went all wrong. So they called me and said, look, you shouldn't come because it's not gonna last. And it only lasted, I think 10 days or something. But I'd already had my mind set, so I said, "Well, I'm going anyway." So, I mean, I, I didn't go to America though; I went to England. Yeah. So I went to England, and I just finished a tour with Status Quo in Australia, and they were in the states. But by the time they got back from the states, and I'd been starving on the streets for a couple of months in <laughs> England, which wasn't yeah. very pleasant. No. It just it worked out that they were looking for someone to build their lighting system because they were bu- buying their own lights and sounds. So, because they were going to be touring nonstop. And, you know, they appreciated me from um, the Australian tour. And, again, my original mentor, Wayne Swampy Jarvis, was working for them directly now living in England. So it was this big tie-in. So it was great. You know, it was like, again, it was like all familiar faces and we all knew each other. And finally I had a job and could get a roof over my head. So that was good too. That was a bonus (laughs) because winter was starting. So that was really good. (laughs) But... um, that's how I started over yeah. there and I worked with Quo for about four years and then I moved on to a production company and that's when I started working for multiple different bands.
0: The gun for hire kind of That's right, situation. yeah.
1: I, I ended up actually taking Status Quo's lighting rig when they finally stopped touring and they were going to take a year off for tax reasons, Um, <laughs> I took that rig into a production company. And they'd only had sound systems up until that time. So now they could offer the full service of sound and lights. Right. And I ran the and I ran the lighting rig department. So that way I never stopped working. So yeah. it was good. You know, it was it was good for the band. They were making money on the rig when they weren't working, and I was working nonstop, so I was making money. And I was getting promoted up the ladder as being in charge of a whole department. Yeah. So it was it was good all around.
0: So you had the keys of the kingdom. You, you you knew how the lighting worked and And you could show these – I guess the whole industry was at that point climbing the ranks too while you were climbing with it.
1: Everybody. And I think that may also have helped me because things were changing so dramatically and so quickly – that everyone was scrambling to keep up. So they really didn't have time to look to the left and go, Oh God, is she still here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they just said to, you know, and then it was like, Oh my God, what do you mean she's my boss? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> so but you know, you you learn the best way to treat people and treat crews, you treat them well and, and they'll they'll go to the end of the world for you.
0: Now you you mentioned their status quo, ACDC, I mean. Before you were 21, there was Carlos Santana, Iggy Pop, Neil Diamond. Now we're going to ask some of the questions that I'm sure uh, a lot of bratty kind of uh, young blokes ask you. Who was the naughtiest?
1: <laughs> Who was the naughtiest? <laughs> well, there was a few naughty ones there, and they are all naughty in their own ways. So Bon was the cheeky naughty one that yeah. would get away with blue murder. Yeah. And, and just flash his grin and wink at you and give you a hug and then run away. So he always got out of trouble. <laughs> then, funnily enough, Carlos Santana was quite cheeky as well, but he was so laid back and sort of cosmic that you mm. didn't ever want to call him on it <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> he, he had that cool, uh, like, yeah. oh, that on vibe, you yeah. know. It was, so then Francis Rossi with Quo's a cheeky boy. He's yeah. definitely a cheeky boy. But the biggest brat factor Yeah. What I call a brat factor, I would say, would be Iggy Pop.
0: Yep, right.
1: Iggy's a bit of a brat when he wants to be.
0: Hi, mate. In a good way, though. Is it?
1: Is I, I, I kind of like Iggy's brat factor, as opposed to say Elton John's brat factor. Yeah. Not for me. Yeah. Okay. But Iggy's brat factor, I can deal with and get a laugh out of.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it's the difference between being a pest and being a princess. I guess.
1: Absol- absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't do
0: tiaras. <laughs> <laughs> but you kind of would have seen this partying that obviously has been mythologized by, by uh, you know fans of music and everyone really likes to think that their favorite musician is is the wildest bloke, you know backstage. How did you kind of evade that kind of uh, whirlpool? I guess you'd say that you know that we have seen and read that a lot of musicians ended up in.
2: Oh yeah. yeah.
1: I, you know, unfortunately I didn't evade it very well at all. I pretty much dived right in. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's, it's all there. It's all being offered. It's all free most of the time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it's like, and it's, you know, the person you're working for goes, come on, we're going to the bar and then we're going out to a party. And then it's like two in the morning and Mm -hmm. they're like, you're not going. You can't go. Come on, we got. We're going to go do this now. Yeah. We're going to do this, and you know you can't sort. It's kind of hard to say no. Yeah. You know, no. I I have to go to bed now because I've got to be up in three hours. You, on the other hand, don't have to be up for another twelve hours. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's that's the tricky bit. That's yeah. the tricky bit. is finding that balance of how little sleep can you really survive on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think's got the hardest job then on? the road crew i mean like who's got me yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um
1: you know i mean well seriously they all they do say i mean lighting is i mean the riggers come in first and leave last Mm -hmm. but they get to sleep all day you know what i mean whereas a lighting lighting crew and now video and stuff like that it's pretty much the same thing you start first you've got the earliest calls You don't stop all day and then, you know, you're pretty much the last ones out as well because you've got to wait for the rigging because that travels with you, you know, with your, your truck. So, yeah, it is lighting I mean, I didn't pick an easy job You know, we we used to call the back line crew the country club yep. You know, because yeah. they just rock up in the afternoon You know, do the show, pack away a few boxes And they'd be back on the bus, you know <laughs> But um, if, if I was smart, I guess I probably should have stayed doing back line but, <laughs> but no, I decided I'd do the hardest job Or the longest job, put it that way
0: <laughs> Did you ever see any accidents?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: unfortunately, yeah
1: yeah, there was no health and safety whatsoever no. for decades. Yeah, <laughs> decades, <yeah. laughs> we're out there, and and everything we used was an adaptation from something else. Yeah. you know, so I mean, even you know, like the the genie tower lifts that that you wind up, you know, they were meant to lift something just the size of the forks, yeah. not something that spanned forty foot across a stage. So that was always playing like stress and stuff on the uh, on the columns and things, yeah, you know. Right would get up and everyone would be winding them up and it's it's all looking good and then all of a sudden you see that three shafts are stuck together on one of them and it just crashes boom and the whole thing goes boom you know and if there's someone up there on it it's like really scary you know stages collapsed we had a rigger fall out of the roof at Wembley Empire Pool that was tragic he did survive he did survive but again you know the motors the chain motors that are used in rigging were converted and run upside down yeah. So you would have a problem. You would have a problem with um, oil and stuff. Yeah. You know? And if it gets on the chain and you're climbing on the chain, you're going to slip. Yeah. So there was always something. There was always something that you had to be beware of. And usually it wasn't something you did yourself. It was usually something that was already there or something that had been adapted and you're told, oh, yeah, the stage is up. It's fabulous. You know. <laughs> well, yeah. well, it is until you step onto it. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Off the stage, are, are these people who go out on stage in front of tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people, are they, in your opinion, just like a regular person when they're not doing that? I mean, like, like, or are they always on?
1: S- some of them are on more than others, but, you know, I, I I, sort of I gravitate to a certain sort of person, you know, naturally and like whether in any social situation, whether it's like, on a tour or off a tour and I tend to go for the brain you know so I like to be able to have a good conversation about anything I mean for example like Whitesnake I'm on a Whitesnake tour you know David Coverdale's the star obviously and he's a darling you know we hang out We'd hang out in bars and stuff. I'd be his sidekick, you know, when he's pulling girls. (laughs) Because he'd say it was better if he had a girl with him, they'd trust him more. It's like, you're making a traitor out of me. (laughs) But if I wanted to to actually, like, hang out and have a a conversation and stuff, I'd go to John Lord, you know, because, like, him and I would share, like, the Sunday crossword puzzle and we talk about all sorts of things, you know. So, you know, it just depends, you know. Some of them don't turn off and that's really unfortunate. It depends what they're doing. You know, I mean, you know, you've got to realize 70s, 80s, even into the early 90s, you know, cocaine was just out of control. Yeah. You know, everyone was doing it all over the place. Every, you know, the only thing that changed in the 90s is they lied and said they weren't doing it, but they still were. Yeah.
0: You know, yeah, so, yeah.
1: so, and, and, you know, that's, that's one of those things where it seems to be harmless for a while, but then all of a sudden you start getting out of control, yeah. you know, and, and you can tell that you can notice it on cruise. You notice it within band members. And, and that's when it gets a little nasty, a little ugly, you know, because who's going to tell the person you can't do that? Yeah. Because whoever tells them you can't do that's going to get fired. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you know, it's tough. It should have been a manager's position or, you know, get them a babysitter, do whatever, you know, whatever it takes. Yeah. It should never really be the crew's job to do it. Yeah. You that's know, it. because it's it's tough. It breaks that bond. There's there's like an unwritten bond between a crew member and a band member that they know that they can trust you and say anything and it won't go any further. Yeah. And I've been careful with that in this book. You know, I mean, I think I've been respectful to that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've told a lot of fun stories and stuff, but, you know, if someone wants to dish dirt, they can do that themselves. It's not my job. So it, it's tough, you know, when when someone starts spinning out of control. And how do you handle it? Elton, when I was with Elton, unfortunately, that was what he was doing. He was spinning out of control and it got really ugly. You know, it yeah. got ugly to the point that I just didn't want
0: to be there anymore. So it's, it's tough. You, you mentioned like, I mean, there's obviously a lot of health and safety hazards that you kind of lived through that a lot of people nowadays wouldn't have to really even consider. And, and as you said, a lot of this is all in your book, Loud. Um, the new book you've, you've just written Loud, which is ex- telling all of these stories and, and, and respectfully so, as you mentioned, uh, you know, you don't exactly name names, but uh Another health and safety kind of element or at least a workplace element that is mentioned uh, in your book is that, you know, you were doing this and you were the only kind of female on the ground as a part of the team 40 years before the Me Too movement. And at that same time, there was, I guess, probably the peak of the idea of groupies, you know, and, and following bands. How did you deal with that dynamic as, you know, a trusted kind of confidant of musicians with a bunch of young girls backstage and this is the most important night of their life
1: yeah you know in the beginning when i was really young and starting out it was the girls that wanted to get backstage that gave me a hard time they kind of saw me as like an obstacle so to speak Mm -hmm. as i got as i got older and more established and i guess climbed up the ladder a bit and and was working for multiple different bands i'd find that wives and girlfriends yeah would befriend me and it's like why are you befriending me i just <laughs> yeah. you're, you're wearing you're wearing really expensive clothes and fake breasts and i've just loaded 10 trucks yeah. what what do we have in common here <laughs> they wanted to know they want to know what their husband or boyfriend's been doing out on the road and it's right. like uh uh-uh, uh that's not <laughs> yeah. my job you know you're asking the wrong person here yeah, yeah, please yeah. Don't, don't put me in that position because it's not going to end well for you so as I got more established, that would be it. And and as far as girls coming to meet bands and stuff, I, I'd see them walking by and stuff, but they would, you know, I'd be too busy. It's like I'd be a constant moving target. So, you know, you see them, but, you know, I would always physically stay away from that because that was kind of my biggest fear was to be typecast yeah. as someone who was just doing the job because she wanted to, you know, yeah. land a musician or yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I was really sensitive to that, but, I've met some of the girls over the years that are, are well-known groupies, I guess you call them, and they're actually really nice girls. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> they're really nice girls, some, a lot of them, and they just love musicians, yeah. you know, so we all might a judge, yeah. you know. Mm. It's not, you know.
0: No different to men acting giggly when their favourite footballer walks in the pub.
1: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or or what never gets talked about, men groupies. Yeah, that yeah. never gets discussed. Yeah, and yeah. There's, they're out there. Yeah. They are out there.
0: With a, I mean, with a texter in hand in an airport near you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> now, it, obviously, life goes on for you as well alongside this. I mean, how are you balancing that work-life balance throughout throughout your career on the road is 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 a lifestyle but you've also got a life outside of that
1: I really didn't you yeah. know I was I, I would tour like 11 months a year at right, least
0: right okay you know
1: and so so my whole environment was people I either knew through work or worked with mm-hmm. or had worked with you know and and that was how it was and and that's the same for a lot of crew people. You get in this and it, it is, you know, the cliche word is it's a bubble, mm-hmm. you know, but you're in that bubble and you find you only ever speak to people who do that job, yep. you know, who are either musicians or a production crew. And it actually, it's awkward talking to people outside of that because they usually want something. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, you do that. Can I come to the show or can you get me an autograph yeah. or you know, can I have an album or, you know, and it's like, well, no,
2: <laughs>
1: no. And I would never do that. I would never go to a band and say, can you give me an autograph for someone? You know, I always felt, because again, it was that girl yeah. going to a band member yeah. asking for that. I, yeah. I just didn't want to do it. So it was like, you got the wrong person. Don't ask me to do that. I can't do that. I, I never did it for myself. So I wasn't going to do it for someone else, you know? So it, it's tough, you know, yeah, it's, that becomes your whole world. And it's also it's it's also a troubling thing when people retire mm-hmm. when they stop touring because they haven't known any other life. Yeah. So you know, there's there's an incredibly high suicide rate with crew people. Right. I don't know if you're aware of that. No. But um, there was a survey done not so long ago, and they were saying that at least 19 percent of all crew people that were t- that were spoken to for this survey admitted to feeling suicidal within the last 12 months right. and that was before covid that was nothing to do with covid so it, it's an incredibly high risk job and it's a stressful job and that's a side that people don't ever really see and that's sort of a bit of the side that i wanted to show that these people do really work hard yeah you know and they do give their all to it
0: yeah yeah how did you find adapting to the settled life when you pulled up stumps I mean at some capacity throughout you know your life I'm not sure if you if you still <laughs> you've, if you've got one more world tour in you with someone like you know, ACDC <laughs> reunion <laughs> I mean th- those oh, guys God. will never stop but uh, yeah, yeah. how did you find how did you find adapting to yeah. um, you know to the I mean oh, well, I, I don't imagine well, you went. I don't imagine and you went I, full I, white picket fence. You didn't go full white picket fence and pull up in the suburbs, I imagine. But uh, no, but you did You did no, settle su- down.
1: Suburbs are not for me. Suburbs <laughs> are not for me. Uh, what I did is I kept evolving throughout yeah. my career. Yeah. So what i do is i change job as as things were needed. You know, like I, I had a son and I couldn't tour. Mm-hmm. So instead of touring, or like I couldn't go out on a 12-month tour yeah. or an 18-month tour, so I did logistics instead. So with logistics, what you're doing is you're taking care of several bands at the same time and you're doing all of their customs for all their equipment. You're, you're chartering air freight planes and ocean containers and, and travel logistics and you're doing all of that. And so you're still doing an incredibly important job and a job that really nobody on the crew understands even. But what they do is, and and, and it's the good thing was that I'd come up through the ranks. So they felt safe handing the equipment over because the last thing a crew person ever wants to do is give the band's equipment over to somebody. You know, they're like, that's my responsibility. You know what (laughs) I mean? But it was like, because I knew what was in the cases and I knew the equipment and I knew all the different departments because I'd worked in them, then, you know, I, I became quite successful at that and had quite a successful company for a while. And, you know, so that was a really good thing. So you know, just evolving to me is something, you know, I, I always had in my mind that I thought, you know, it's not a good look to see a woman loading a truck when she's 50 years old. You know, it's bad enough watching a guy do it when they're 50, but to see a woman, is it any different? No, it's just my personal thing. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be doing it, you know what I mean? So I've always evolved, you know, and then I evolved to, you know, non-profits for putting music back into schools, doing that sort of thing. And then writing the book, so you know I've been I've been incredibly busy and very fortunate actually, even through times of COVID, you know to have this going on during COVID, is you know it's a distraction. Hopefully, people will see it as a as a distraction. They can read and they can get a bit of enjoyment out of it and and think of the time when it's all going to come back and it's going to be real again. Mm -hmm. You know that's. Hopefully, what we can get from this. Yeah. Well,
0: well, we're glad, Tana, that the, the, the stories have been told. You know, we're glad that the, you've written it down, and you know, we've had a great chat today. And those listening can find all this and more, a lot more, in in your new book, Loud. You know, uh, you obviously a uh, an icon to to the industry, and uh, you know, you were mentioned to us and by some musicians who you know obviously think the world of you, and and all this is in the book. So we we look forward to uh, reading. and and hearing a lot more from you but uh thank you for joining us today
1: thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure thanks guys
2: thank you
0: thank you